Broadway Bullet, Volume 812, Musical or Opera, for January 23rd, 2018. Don't miss a single episode. Subscribe for free through broadwaybullet.com, iTunes, or your favorite podcast aggregator. Many blurred lines between opera and musical theater, and in this episode, we have artists working on shows that demonstrate this. Rodney Ingram is making his Broadway debut in a feature role as Raoul in Phantom of the Opera after understudying Aladdin last year. He discusses his exciting move and how he got there. Christian de Grey is a composer whose work is often sung through and unabashedly opera. With a successful run of his show, Whiskey Pants in the Bag, he talks about promoting opera to musical theater fans. Seth Sklarhein is no stranger to opera, as he heads up Cameron Mackintosh North America, the company arguably responsible for rebranding opera for the modern age. With a redesigned tour of Phantom of the Opera on the road, he discussed the new production and the show's remarkable legacy. Finally, Lisa Moira recently wrapped up directing the four-character chamber opera, Lady of the Castle. She talks about the unique challenges of directing an opera and finding and working in alternative venues to advance the art form. This show isn't Puccini, so buckle up. thanks to our location sponsor. Writers need a full community of support in order to do their important work. That's where DGF steps in. The Dramatist Guild Foundation is a national charity that fuels the future of American theater by supporting playwrights, composers, lyricists, and book writers at all stages of their careers. They do this by sponsoring educational programs, providing emergency aid to writers in need, and offering a free rehearsal space where I've recorded this episode. For any questions about how DGF might be able to help you, please visit dgf.org. Special thanks to our travel sponsor. I wanted to give a little extra time this episode to shout out the major in theater and business arts I created at the University of Providence in Montana, because we are accepting applications for our inaugural freshman class. I developed and created this program to be different from everything out there. We're not here to stuff you into a box to become the type of theater artist we want you to be. We want you to explore and develop yourself into the unique artist you can become. Alongside that, you will learn how the business side works, so you come out prepared, knowing exactly what your next steps are. Just like you hear so many artists on this program talk about the importance of making your own work, you will be doing just that while you study with us. Someone's talent level is not the main factor in your success as an artist. Learning how to handle and promote yourself in this business is just as, if not, quite frankly, more important to your success. So give yourself some options and apply to our program online. It's a free application. All students accepted to our program will get at least $7,000 a year in scholarship assistance. We also have some great advantages, like a four-year graduation guarantee and a student loan repayment assistance program that will pay all or part of your payments government and private loans if you are earning under 40000 a year. I put all the application links at broadwaybullet.com in the top menu. Then drop me an email to discuss the program further. I'd love to go into more detail with you to see if we're the right place to help you achieve your dreams. And now, on to our program. On the boards. Rodney Ingram is making his debut as a featured role in Phantom of the Opera as Raoul after having his first major stint understudying Aladdin 
on Broadway. So we're really excited here to talk with him and have him share all of his experiences uh, out of Cap 21 and pretty quickly into some great things. Rodney Ingram is here to talk with us. How you doing? Pretty good. <laughs> At your service. I'm excited. Thanks yeah. for having me. Yeah, so um, I just saw the show Phantom in May before I saw it again mm -hmm. with you in it. And you were doing it in May. So how long have you been been at Raul? Um, Raul, this is, uh, it's been about, uh, I guess, six months or so Okay, now. so you must so, have come in like right after. Yeah, right? for sure. <laughs> Absolutely, for sure. So, so, it's been a blast. Uh, so what, what has your experience been as an actor from, because now, is this the longest run you've done so far? I was in Aladdin for two years, okay, two years. But, but, but just like you said, yeah. it was in the understudy track, yeah. so I had my, I was man 12, you know, <laughs> I was, uh, you know, dancing in the marketplace in Agrabah, and then obviously, if and when Adam Jacobs, who I understudied for, he got sick or went on vacation for whatever reason, I would step in and fulfill the title <laughs> track. So, but for continually every night performing Correct. a role. Yeah, this has been, this has been a great long run, which has given me the opportunity to just, uh, really find new things every night and know exactly what I'm doing when I come into work. So therefore, I can find the spontaneity in it, which has been a blast. Yeah, that's what I want to talk about. Because mm -hmm. I think coming out of... I don't think there's anything when an actor trains or goes to school mm -hmm. that can truly prepare them for a long run. True. Yeah, yeah. They, don't, they can't teach you that in school, you know? There's <laughs> you a stamina that's required that, I, that you continually have to learn about and get, get well-versed in to be able to... To know your body, know yeah. know everything well, so you know what you're bringing to the table every night, because that changes. Yeah. The show may stay the same, yeah. but we as human beings, we arrive at it, you know, from a different spot. Yeah, theater's live. Of course, you? that's the joy. What, what have been the tricks? What have you picked up over the course of six months for learning how to keep it fresh, how to keep going? Um, did, did you at any point in this first part of it find yourself going stale and find yourself learning how to bring that back? You definitely weren't stale when I saw you last night. You were fantastic, <laughs> by the way. And thank big, you. Big, big voice, I think. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, uh, well, I think there are so many different things. I think we don't even have to arrive at it with the intention of being different. I think mm -hmm. you just have to arrive at it with the intention of what is your objective in the scene. You know, like, I'm not going to play... When I'm, when I'm the old man in the auction yeah. scene at the beginning of the show, I'm really not thinking about the rest of the show. I'm just being in that moment. And I feel, as an actor, as long as we can be in that moment and say, make our next entrance, open the next yeah. door, as I like to say, then we'll always be you know, living as truthfully and honestly as we can. So, and obviously, if you're there and if you're present, you know, I get to work with, uh, with Ali and James right now, who are mm -hmm. fantastic, as you know. So um, we both try to be as organic and present with each other. Not, not trying to be different, but just by virtue of who we are and what we bring to that day, you just uh, inherently, it's a different performance. And obviously keeping it alive and fresh is something that the audience helps so much with because, you know, presumably it's an entirely different audience <laughs> who have not seen it before. So we get the privilege to share the story. So it's an honor in that way. And it's, I would also say, especially with a piece like this, it's been around since, you know, 86 in London and 88 yeah. here in New York. There's, there's such a legacy and history of it. So it's, uh, we've, we, we're very cognizant of that. So we're very, uh, we have that pride as well in, in wanting to share this great story and uphold it in its, uh, in its utmost sense. Um, I'm curious, to you, like, I, I, I think my listeners know this from when I interviewed James. I, I had never seen Phantom before this May with all mm -hmm. the things I was a theater fan. I was snobby. Totally. You know? <laughs> I was like, yeah, right. see ya. But, you know, and, and I, I enjoyed it. And not only that, that I, well, I enjoyed it enough that I'm like, yeah, I'll go back. I'd like to see Rodney before I, you know, talk to him. And then I found that I enjoyed it even more <laughs> the second time when I could, like, w watch all the wonderful detail happening in the background mm -hmm. and, the set, and the set design and stuff. Um, but do you get any friends that are, like, giving you the snob attitude or at all? Because I, I do know it's not an uncommon thing in New York or for sure. New Yorkers to... Feel very snobby about that show. Sure, I think uh, you know Phantom of the Opera has that has that sort of uh, you know it does it does elicit a reaction. We get so many people who it's it's their favorite show. Yeah, we have so many people who it's their least favorite show. We have so many people who it's the only musical they might have ever heard of before. You know, because it has that it has that appeal and it also has that like oh this is a 
a piece within the music theater canon that really kind of you know changed things <laughs> up, and obviously being the longest running musical. So, I wonder how many people who yeah. it's their least favorite show were like me. It's their least favorite <laughs> show, and they never saw it. Exactly, for <laughs> sure. I, I would invite them to come and check it out. I have a hard uh, time. I, I dare anybody to actually yeah. say it's their least favorite <laughs> show after seeing it. You know, I mean, I can understand. I, I tend to agree. You know, <laughs> I tend to agree, and I and I relate with you when I when I had the opportunity to see it a couple times while trying, you know, to trail, um, the, you know, the actor who was playing Rao before me and just to see the show, I had the opportunity just to uncover so many different things and so many different layers in the piece that, you know, one might at first glance think, oh, it's a pretty, you know, archetypal story. I think yeah. absolutely not. You yeah, know, no, it really breaks that tradition. So, uh, yeah. yeah I, I'm a writer and so I have uh -huh. a hero's journey and I totally. did look at it. This is really not yeah. the typical hero's journey no, in any no, way. I can't not, find it. It's, you no. know. <laughs> there's there's no formula for it. It's not you know strictly speaking a cookie cutter characters in the slightest. Other they're, than they're all over the place. Popular. So. I don't know why the snobs don't like it. Right. Other than it's popular, I don't mm -hmm. know why the snobs don't like it because it really is. It's dark. It's about sex and seduction totally. and things. It doesn't follow the typical mm -hmm. standard story arc that like ninety nine percent of everything does. True. You know so this this should appeal to those outside. You know the, those people who don't like absolutely. The, Formula, because it's mm -hmm. it's not for sure. <laughs> I, I I like to say you know my character of Raoul and any other musical, he would be you know the heroic, mm -hmm. uh, you know the the love figure, the love interest, mm -hmm. you know, to come to save the day. But there's something you know, a, you know, not the guy season, who gets almost no, hanged at the end and has to be rescued himself. Exactly, and, he, and <laughs> yeah, and he, he's a selfish dude. There, there's yeah. a sinister way about him yeah. too. You know, the audience at the end of the day, you know, you're. You're feeling torn between he and the Phantom. Which way should Christine go? So it's a, uh, it's definitely there's a lot, a lot happening there. So, what is it like coming in? How do you rehearse into an existing show? What, what was your experience rehearsing into Phantom? Totally. The... Yeah. Well, I've I've had the privilege to do that twice now because mm -hmm. I I came into Aladdin, which was already ongoing, mm -hmm. and coming into Phantom, which was already ongoing. Um, um, for Phantom, it was a two week rehearsal process for me. Um, two weeks to get it. Two yeah. weeks, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and actually, I was at Aladdin, so I had to do. <laughs> the, I had to end Aladdin. I gave my four weeks' notice yeah. with them, and then the very next day, because uh, a Phantom works um, on on Mondays, so the very next day, yeah. I was right in the office at uh, at the Majestic Theater and in the studio yeah. with the stage managers trying to learn the track. So that was intense, but I was so happy and eager and yeah. awesome. So it was. Uh, Two-week rehearsal process to learn the track of Raoul, and uh, it was a blast, you know, and uh, whenever you enter an ongoing musical, it is a well-oiled machine, yeah. and Phantom of the Opera, there's, I would say, no better. It's been on since, you know, 1988, so they know exactly what they're doing, so it's, uh, it's definitely, you fit right in, they know exactly, oh, yeah, no, I'll, they have, they know some stuff, they have it all figured out, so, uh, yeah, it was a very, very seamless thing. You know, I have to say, when I was rehearsing for it, I, I loved, the more I knew about the show, the more increasingly that I fell in love with it, the more that I increasingly fell in love with the character and the track and everything, and I got to uncover new things about it. So by the time that my put-in rehearsal and my first performance rolled along, I felt ready. Mm -hmm. I felt, you know, nervous, but not, not, not terribly, you know, frightened. <laughs> you know, I was just, uh, I, felt, I felt ready to tell the story, so... I mean, that show is also like, it's a technical monster with hitting spots and stuff. Mm -hmm. I, it's a beast. Remember, James actually gave me and uh, my student a tour backstage after nice. the show last night when we saw it, which was thrilling. But he talked totally. about that. He goes, here, and here's where Raul jumps into yes. the, the darkness. He's like, and if he doesn't see this, he doesn't jump. Exactly. I'm like, I, I, <laughs> It's intense, yeah, <laughs> for sure. Not entirely sure if it's up to code, but you know what? It's a blast, so I'm into it. So and I think I happen to think it's a really cool effect too from the mm -hmm. audience when you see Raoul jumping into like an abyss and going right through the stage. It's a you cool know, effect. This show, thirty years in, is still one mm -hmm. of the most technically impressive shows I've seen on Absolutely. Broadway. I think the only thing that I that is truly more tech porn mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> than this that I've seen is Rocky. Rocky sure. was, you know. Absolutely. You know, and this is thirty but you know, and then my mind goes, this is now, mm -hmm. 30 years ago, I mean, I, I really understand the mania over this totally. now. Because, it had uh, to be, yeah, I, I mean, what, what else was like this? Nothing. People had I to mean, be I mean, this is a magic show. Away, it's yeah. a horror story. It's, you know, I mean, 
Admittedly, I mean, there's songs I like. My, my mm-hmm. problem, my snobbishness resulted around it seemed like a whole lot of reprises. And I was like, totally. my snobbishness is always like, oh, yeah, there's seven there's really good melody. songs. Yeah. <laughs> but it's seven good songs over and over. How does mm-hmm. that go on for two and a half hours? Mm-hmm. Well, it does. It's the, yeah, and, it's the and, and I had never listened to the, the middle. You know, there's a lot of stuff that's not on the, you know, the, the totally, highlights. For sure, for sure. <laughs> so, I mean, it is. It, it was wonderfully surprising. I thought I knew Phantom. And <laughs> yeah, absolutely. My fav- One of my favorite parts to learn um, and, 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 and to perform as well is, is the manager scenes, <laughs> which are not, you know, things that are easy listening by any means. But, uh, you know, it's, when it's done on stage, there's such a stage craft that that the music has inherently in there because every actor, every character, I should say, has their own point of view and what they're trying to accomplish, and it fits in just like a puzzle piece. Mm-hmm. Listening to Managers One with the notes into into Prima Donna and yeah. having a Carlotta be like so extra above <laughs> everybody else, it's just a blast to be able to learn that because it was the most complex stuff to learn. I feel, and then when it all comes together, and I feel like when you when you pull it off right, and we all sing once more at the very end, mm. and, I, and I have my notes in the air. I feel like it's such a rewarding thing because you know that as an actor, you you navigated that puzzle piece, mm. and as an audience member, I feel like you're served a full course meal because you've got this whole really complex music, really enriching storytelling, and uh, you know, v- very very complex and uh, and deliberate, which is with each character. So that's uh, that's so fun to do and also to uh, to pull off well, I think. <laughs> All right. Well, it has been a pleasure talking to you. I know you got Thank two, you so shows, much. To two shows today. Two shows today. Yeah. So um, I'm really glad you took the time out to come by and chat with us. Thanks very much. Thanks I for having me. Wish you the best of luck and I look forward to seeing you play many more roles in many other <laughs> shows in the future. Absolutely. We'll do it. We'll talk again. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. I wanted to remind everybody that if you are interested in hearing more from any of the people we interview about their work, etc., we put up the full unedited interviews online and in our feed as well. So if you'd like to hear more about this, go to broadwaybullet.com, click on volume 812, and you will find those episodes. <laughs> Listening Room. Before we talk to our next artist, composer, writer, Christian DeGray, I thought you might want to hear one of his songs. This is Dangerous to Dream from his just recently wrapped up Whiskey Town, the mayor of Williamsburg. Why are you so blue, my dear? Papa, did you not ever have a dream? It's dangerous to dream. Too much and then to strive to want a life, a wife, and dangerous to dream. Dangerous to dream. It's dangerous to hope, to cope, to love, to rise above the push and shove your tired heart. Dangerous to dream. Dangerous to dream. Life may not be what it seems, but still. It's dangerous to dream. Dangerous to dream. Dangerous to dream. A child in school can be anything they wish. Yes, not a lion or a king or a talking fish. But let's decrease the difficulty factor. Let's say this kid, he wants to be an actor. He learns to speak, to move, to memorize his lines. But he ends up serving. Dangerous to dream, dangerous to dream, dangerous to dream. Oh, 
was Dangerous to Dream by Christian DeGray. And if you're interested in hearing more, especially after hearing our upcoming interview, and you're listening right away, he's got a one-night-only event coming up at 54 Below, A Drink with Death, Volume 2. That is February 2nd. One night only. Don't miss it. You can visit the website at 54below.com for more information. Up Close. Christian DeGray is uh, head of Mind the Art Entertainment and the composer-director for Whiskey Pants, which, depending on when you're listening to this, may still be playing at uh, <laughs> Here Entertainment or maybe finished, but uh, will likely be seen somewhere near you soon. How are you doing? Good, good. How are you, sir? <laughs> good. So, very first thing, and, and we, we'll probably start to touch on this and then go back to it later, but um, the the... Composer director, I don't think is a slash 
Mark that I've seen before. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm curious how you ended up as a composer director. Sure. Um, mm. I, but primarily I started as a composer and then who couldn't get his work produced and so ended up doing kind of uh, figuring out a way to produce my own work and um, part of that just ended up getting the, the directing mantle. Um, I originally studied acting but uh, hated it like most people who were once actors and then turned into something else. Um, but I really enjoyed figuring out a way to tell my own stories without having to go through another interpreter. Um, so that was fun and it's... It's a weird combination, like I think, like you said, because uh, the visuals from a directing standpoint are so different from kind of the composer brain. Mm -hmm. um, so I kind of end up splitting my brain half and half when I'm doing the show, where there's some days where I just got my eyes closed and I'm listening to everything, and other days when I have to just physically work on the <laughs> on the <laughs> on the blocking side of it and all the visuals. Um, but yeah. It's fun. <laughs> so Whiskey Pants yeah. has a little bit of a history. Right at the moment as we're speaking, it's playing at Here Arts. Mm -hmm. uh, and But I understand this won a couple of awards. The Frigid? Is the yeah, it originally opened at Frigid, which, uh, for anybody who doesn't know, is like the winter fringe uh, here <laughs> in, uh, in New York. Um, yeah, and we opened, it was funny, when we opened that show, it was in the middle of a blizzard, uh, and we got the audience favorite, and um, our dressing rooms were actually two blocks away from the theater. And our show, as you've seen, has a lot of corsets and a lot of, you know, yeah. kind of... Uh, Costumes are fantastic. Costuming, yeah. yes. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah. remember that we had to have all the actors walk from during a blizzard from oh. <laughs> two blocks away <laughs> over. So um, we were quite amazed at the fact that we uh, won the audience favorite and the top-selling show, the festival, during um, 2015. Yeah. So what was the process? How long did it take to get this moved to here, arts? Um... So, the, that's funny, when we first came up with the idea for the show, we just submitted to Frigid as a joke. We submitted <laughs> with just the name. Um, I was at a, at a football game, and, some, and I said I had too much whiskey last night. And they're like, you, you're a little Mr. Whiskey Pants. Um, and I was like, oh, we should write a show, that's a good name. Uh, <laughs> then I was uh, uh, at a bar, and the bartender said to me, uh, my dad is the mayor of Williamsburg. And I was like, there's no mayor in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. That's not a... <laughs> so we just kind of threw this together. And the way that Frigid works, it's a lottery system. So... Uh, we put our name on there and uh, got picked, and then we wrote the show in three weeks, uh, and then uh, put it together in two more weeks, and then went up at Frigid. Um, after that, we got we were really interested in seeing how we could develop it further. So the first stage that we did is we actually moved it to a place called Drum, which is a Turkish nightclub downtown, um, and did it as kind of uh, like just as a fully immersive experience at a bar. Um, and it was not the most successful <laughs> endeavor in terms of that, but it was a good experiment. So then we wanted to try to find a hybrid of that. And Here Arts is a wonderful space that really uh, focuses on hybrid works, particularly with new opera um, and multimedia pieces. So we did a show there in February uh, called Jack of Hearts, Master of None, and uh, really had a good time there. And so I emailed Kristen and said, we'd love to be part of, um, of our, your main stage season for their 25th anniversary. Um, and so we became part of their sublet series. And... Um, it, it's, you know, then it was six months of rewriting. And I mean, I think we rewrote most of the show for, <laughs> for doing it. Um, but here is one of those magical few spaces left in New York City where you can still experiment, and it's uh, risk-free. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, you mentioned new opera, and I, mm -hmm. I have to say, I actually think I would honestly classify this... I mean, you know, a lot of reviewers are saying it's a sung through musical, but with the voices you have in that show mm -hmm. and, and your writing, I... I would I personally would feel much more cl comfortable classifying it as new opera, as American opera. Yes, and um, you know the original, the first time we did the show, we called it an operetta, um, and then it's not funny enough to be an operetta, so we're like, okay, it's not really an operetta, um, but it is in, in form and style. It is written as an opera. Um, you're very, we, you're, your singers are very legit. Yes, you know? yeah, and half the and this is a fun company because half the cast is uh, opera singers and half the cast are musical yeah. theater singers, um, and that how those that conversation happens between the two of them has been really fun to watch. Yeah. Because um, they approach their instrument in such a different way. Um, but the only reason we're not calling it an opera is because we, I met with a Broadway <laughs> yeah, producer yeah. who was like, you'll never sell it. Yeah, so. no, I, I, I understand definitely on the commercial tactics. So but, up, yeah. but, uh, but I, I don't think it should be a bad word, you know, I mean, no, at no. all, that, you know, opera is, you know, mm -hmm. scary. I mean, people think of opera as scary because it was foreign language, but that foreign language was somebody's yeah. native language. <laughs> so, you know, that was contemporary music at the time. You know, people think of mm -hmm. operas old and stuffy and foreign, mm -hmm. but that old stuffy and foreign was contemporary and fresh and current mm -hmm. in its t in its time. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny. Um, I worked on. Uh, I used to work at Ars Nova when they started Natasha Pier and the Great Comet, 
And they had the same kind of conversations mm -hmm. in the marketing meetings there, where they were like, this is really an opera. But now, of course, it was called an opera then, and then when it got to Broadway, it was the great new American musical. Yeah. You yeah. know, <laughs> well, listen, I do, th I do think your piece is more of an opera, even though theirs is completely sung through, Theirs does, to me, still feel more like musical theater canon somehow. I mean, it's the mere fact of, A, the really legit voices that you have. I mean, you have singers, even even you may say half are you know, more theater-based and opera-based, but mm -hmm. they still struck me as more in control of their instrument than even you know, a lot of Broadway performers that I've seen. Um, the melodies you write are just really soaring, and you don't even really go much to a, a recitative. Mm -mm. Um, yeah. You know, I, I mean, there were a lot of elements that I felt you know, warranted in. Our, our listeners hopefully won't be as afraid, you know, of the term <laughs> opera. I know, I know, like, I know exactly we'll why you're them. pitching <laughs> I know exactly why you're pitching it, you know, business-wise as an mm -hmm. opera. But, you know, to put the word out there, that shouldn't be a dirty word, and hopefully that doesn't scare people away because it was just a really wonderful oral, oral experience. Um, in fact, I mean, it, it felt like, um, like you really custom wrote it for these actors, but this has been two years now. I mean, did you custom write it for these actors? Yeah, so one of the things that we do, um, and I probably should stop doing it because it's exhausting, but every time, <laughs> every time I, um, we create a new production, uh, we always, we look at the, we don't cast to a set voice, right? So we'll cast some who we think is actually the best yeah. Uh, personality for the sh for the for the characters, and then I'll, I'll rewrite the score to the singers, um, and that way I can really. I mean, as you've seen, yeah. the, the the music spans quite a range for all of them, and mm -hmm. um, and I so we played to their strengths. And so uh, when we did start with the original company, I wrote it all for them, and then when we did it again, I rewrote part of it for the yeah. new company. And with this one, uh, we actually have two casts for this show because uh, of the the music is challenging enough that we have to have alternates just because they can't really sustain. Yeah. Um, that number of performances a week uh, with what I'm doing to them. Um, so the, that was a challenge with this thing is how to write for both of the alternate companies. And, you know, we have options up and down for every kind of role. And um, it's just, yeah, it's been a, a process. But I do find that when you do that, you're giving the actors in so much freedom to kind of explore within their own comfort zone. Um, and I, I wish that the commercial theater would do that more because it's, um, it used to be the norm, but not anymore. <laughs> yeah. They wouldn't yeah. Do replacement would come in on the lead they'd you know they'd rescore a little bit re you know transpose. Well, it's like i think hello dolly has i think between donna murphy and uh Bette miller there's like a they, they like a semitone for every song and it's like part of <laughs> it's part of her contract that she has to be one semitone higher than the other but when you think about it good like concept i mean that's an orchestration nightmare you have to <laughs> do parts for redo parts for everything at that and point. orchestration is Expensive. Yes. <laughs> do, you, do you orchestrate your own stuff or do you go? Here? Yes, I've always. That's one of the. I'm pretty sure I can let go of everything else. I can let go of, of the producing part, yeah. the directing part, but not the orchestrations. I'm, um, I've been blessed to have these wonderful musicians that I've worked with for years, but um, that's probably the most fun part for me is the, is the, or the orchestral part of it. Um, and for this show, yeah, we have a clarinet, a bass clarinet, a cello, and a violin. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just fun. It's fun to write for them. You know, uh, one of our bass clarinet players is actually the, the bass clarinet player for Phantom. And I'm like, why do you keep doing this? Like, you lose money every time you come do this. <laughs> um, and he's like, because you write really weird things that are fun and nobody else writes with a bass clarinet like this. So, well, you know, you here's know. how I came out of it. Um, I mean, you're definitely a very smart composer. I mean, I think, you know, in terms of, um, I, say, you know, I think it's easy to say like the, Lachiza, Sondheim, Camp versus like the Weber, right. you know, and uh, and I, I, you know, would place you firmly in the smarter camp. And while you do a lot of interesting and different, maybe as he says, weird things, it sounds good. Some of their weird stuff it goes in really in an intentionally distant places, but you mm -hmm. use dissonances in your harmonies and you do things. But they, I felt they created the right tensions, they create the right releases that, for as complex as it is, I feel that it is more accessible. I mean, I'm not necessarily, you still, the first time through, not necessarily going to walk away humming anything, right. but I, I felt there were some really glorious moments that felt more like, I don't know, maybe more like Lachiza and Hammerstein had a, mm -hmm. a, a crazy <laughs> love child. Uh, <laughs> one of my... Um... <laughs> One of my favorite composers is, uh, is uh, Bernstein, and then his, and actually more his orchestral works than his uh, what he's famous for, not for West Side Story, yeah. but more of you know uh, just kind of his orchestral works. And what I loved about the way that he approached the work was always I need to find that place where the audience starts to kind of 
shut down because they're not really engaged with what you're doing because you're being too weird, and then pull it back so it's accessible. Uh, <laughs> um, and a lot of the show, for me, you know, the most of the time signatures in the show are, are strange. We've got a lot of 15-8 and 12-8s and... Um, 18-8 at one point for no yeah. discernible reason, and 7-4s and things like that are not traditional for musical yeah. theater, or at least not as common. Um, um, but for me, the goal Nowhere that, near as common. No, no. Uh, <laughs> and my singers hate me. I mean, the, I think the opening, the opening duet is, like, goes from 5-4 to 15-8 back and forth, and the, the first time the uh, actresses looked at it, they were like, you're just cruel. Like, this is yeah. just cruel. Why are you doing this? Um, but for me, part of the whole thing was about figuring out a way to make that not just weird for weird sakes, but an accessible choice. Yeah. And why does that? Why does it have to? Say like, that? I, I am a yeah. composer, know the mm -hmm. time signatures, and there was no point in my head actually that I sat and go, "Oh, he's using an odd right. time signature." Mm -hmm. It just, it just never occurred to me. I was, I was basically good. good. Then I and, and, and when I compose, that's my goal too: is that yeah. it suits or it does something, and not people like going, "Oh, he's clever. He's writing in seven Yeah, because then that's or... just self-indulgent, you know. That <laughs> <part>. <laughs> um, so I'm, I mean, I'm not a huge Andrew Lloyd Webber fan, but one of the things I do like about G Square Superstar is his weird use of time signatures that are that was pretty accepted. It was, yeah. I think, probably the only song in five four that was ever on a Billboard, you know, yeah. <laughs> on the charts. Yeah, but so it's in, you know, it's fun in that way. So whiskey pants, lots of things in Seven Deadly Sins coming up. Uh, mind the art, entertainment. Is it arts or art? Art, mind it's the art. Just, uh, yeah, as if you're about to step on a piece of art, yeah. and then you're... is that the website as well? <laughs> mind mind the, the entertainment.com. And uh, so a lot of places to check out what uh, Christian DeGray, De De yeah, <laughs> the R I had that, that right, is doing. And uh, best of luck to you with the rest of the Thanks, run man. with Whiskey Pants. If people are listening to this right away, well, how long does Whiskey Pants run? So we uh, run for five weeks. So okay. uh, we're actually about to approach our closing week now, but... You know. Okay, yeah, so probably, so probably, yeah, probably yeah. pass, but hopefully they'll see a revival, a Whiskey yeah. Pants revival. Yeah, we're hoping to uh, develop it uh, regionally now, so maybe some of the people they can outside Maybe by the time it comes out, you'll have some of the recordings out. Yes, people absolutely. people to hear yeah. your, uh, <laughs> your amazingly intricate and glorious harmonies. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so, um, well, thanks for coming by. Of course, thanks so much, sir. Thank you. <laughs> Breaking the business. Seth Sklar-Hein is the uh, producer and associate director for the road tour of Phantom of the Opera. He also is involved in many different capacities, I believe, as producer and associate director with uh, various incarnations of Les Mis and Phantom. And uh, so my guess is several things associated with the Cameron Macintosh empire. Any and all. <laughs> and he's here at the Dramatist Guild Foundation with us today. How are you doing? Very good. Thrill thrilled to talk. Thrilled to talk about Cameron. All right, yeah, tell me all the bad stuff. <laughs> Spill on your boss so that you won't get hired again. <laughs> I, don't know if I, I don't know if I ever signed an NDA, but, um, but we'll, we'll assume I did at some point in one of those pieces of paper. So first off, I, I kind of gave the quick intro, but um, it, it's clear you wear many hats. Um, on many different productions, yes. so maybe maybe you can give a slightly longer summary than I just gave for the introduction. Yeah, well, so my I call it my day job. My day job is working as the executive producer for Cameron Macintosh Incorporated, which is the American North American arm of his company, which in the UK is CML. Here we're CMI, just a different yeah. entity. But I work here as one of two full-time employees. We also have another gentleman in the company who is up at the office and looks after a lot more of the things as a, as a production assistant, essentially, for Cameron and others in the organization. Um, so my day job as executive producer is really representing Cameron on any and all aspects of his productions in North America, whether it's a production in New York or on tour, whether it's sitting down in some other city, sometimes even if there are rights involved with amateur productions or regional productions that he's had a connection to over time. For example, once was Witches of Eastwick up at Agunquit, and I can help on the ground here to liaise with the, the regional theater or the local folks with the UK office and others just to make it all work. Then my night job, <laughs> essentially, is working as an associate director on a number of the projects, including Phantom Broadway, where I'm billed as the production supervisor, but that really is just a term that I think that's been inherited over time. So does that mean you rehearse in the new actors and such? Yeah, and so I, I rehearse in. Typically, I spend more time working with the principals from start to finish 
and the dance captain and stage managers in a very old school New York traditional mm -hmm. stage management way, mm -hmm. the stage managers and dance captains typically get the ensemble folks up yeah. and running. And then I'll come in and work with them if they have specialties or features and then see them at their put-ins. Um, that's one thing about Phantom Broadway where as a building where I started back when I was 19 as a, an assistant mm -hmm. stage manager, I learned from Craig Jacobs that a production stage manager on a show was to stand in the place of the director mm -hmm. for the running of the show. And of course, over time, I'm the perfect example of <laughs> the, the problem when it comes to <laughs> subverting, the subverting the PSM role on Broadway because I have worked except for once or twice, yeah, twice now, I've worked for Brits and I've bought into and absorbed and, and celebrated the British model, which involves resident directors, associate directors, staying on with productions and dealing with anything to do with the art, whereas the stage managers traditionally in the UK aren't as involved in that way and wouldn't be the ones putting in new people in any any caliber uh, of the performance. So I spend my time working as a production I never knew supervisor. There was that difference oh yeah, there is a difference. There is a difference and there's uh, depending on who you talk to, there's So also great associate director is a very different title basically depending on which side of the pond you're on. Correct. <laughs> and and also yeah. just what who you're working yeah. with and uh, I, I learned early on that with most directors that I was working with one example would be Trevor Nunn. I'll try to drop as many names okay. as I can. So uh, Trevor, when I, when I was hired first to work for Trevor Nunn, it was on Rock and Roll, uh, a Tom Stoppard play that ran at the Jacobs Theater. And he hired me as an assistant director. And of course, at that point, I was already in that mindset of trying to vie for more. And if you weren't going to pay me more money, which they weren't, maybe I'd get more of a title or maybe I'd get billing or maybe I'd get something else that didn't cost anybody anything but meant the world to me. And I learned very quickly from Trevor that I had to prove myself at least once, if not twice, before I could assume an associate role mm -hmm. and really be in, in his place uh, on a production. So after a few more years, when we did a little night music, the revival, I was then serving as his associate director. So I climbed a small Trevor Nunn ladder and, <laughs> and achieved a height. Um, so I, I work as the production supervisor at Phantom Broadway, which is really the associate director role uh, in dealing with the production and all aspects of the production, whether it's to do with casting or rehearsals or overseeing stage management and the scheduling and anything to do with any aspects of, uh, of the production that might change on stage due to technical adjustments or, or uh, design uh, refurbishment, if you will. So the title is what it is. Um, there was an associate director by n title, when the production opened on Broadway, and that was Ruth Mitchell, who was a longtime associate of Hal Prince's, as a as both an associate producer and. A, and she was a, just a, like, "Is this show ever going to stop oh running?" Oh my God! Well, <laughs> and I just I just missed her. I came in, I came into Phantom around ninety nine two thousand, and right around that time, I wasn't necessarily very involved. I was still new, very much learning the the ropes of the building and the show and having just gotten my equity card. So I just sort of fell into that opportunity. But I missed getting to know or meeting Ruth Mitchell. And of course, she, she's a name that a lot of people don't know. And yet she's one of the people when I think of what I do now is I sort of emulate Ruth Mitchell or I dream of emulating Ruth mm -hmm. Mitchell. I think anyone, if, if, if anyone was listening to this, they'd think, man, you've got to grow some balls before you're going to be Ruth Mitchell. <laughs> she, was, she was a bulldog, and, and really Hal trusted her with everything. I mean, it's amazing how many women, strong women, be it designers or, or technicians or uh, on this producing side, how many women Hal surrounded himself with who knew what they were doing. And Ruthie used to put rehearsals together and rehearse, and Hal would show up and watch something and then say, nope, not ready, I'm out. And he'd leave and she'd continue. And it was, there's some wonderful footage from 890 Broadway Studios, the fourth floor, that wonderful old fourth floor studio that was part of the, the whole establishment that Michael Bennett created down there. I think ABT is now on that floor. But they, they had some footage that NBC shot when Phantom was first coming to Broadway. 
and Ruth Mitchell is sitting there at the table and her script is open and her glasses are pulled, sitting right on the top of her nose, right forward, and she's looking over the lenses. And I thought, that's a power position. <laughs> so wh whereas Hal puts his glasses on his forehead, I try to let them droop down mm -hmm. to the tip of my nose and I can just sort of <laughs> see in judgment. Um, so I, over time, they became a role in that building to support the production under Ruth Mitchell, and that became the production supervisor. And mainly that was because there were so many productions happening. <laughs> they needed somebody on the ground in New York who worked on both the Broadway production, the touring production, the Los Angeles production, the sit-down in San Francisco, and so on. Um, so that's where the title came from. How many productions from. are still running, by the way, out there? Well, in, in North America, we have the original production on Broadway that's yeah. going to turn 30 this January, and then the new touring production that's been out since the fall of 2013. So those are, that's it in North America. Yeah, but there's the rest of the And world. then there's, there's <laughs> other replica productions around the world, and you've got the original uh, flagship in, in London at Her Majesty's. And then you've usually, there was one recently in Hamburg. They've had them in, uh, oh God, I mean... I think they, they do them in Asia a few times. Every, every few years, they run them in rep with other productions. There used to be an office for Andrew's company, really useful group, that ran out of Australia, and they oversaw the Pacific and Australia with productions happening over there. So do you see your deal happening. with any of the numbers? I do I, see the numbers. Because I, I remember it's a, it's like when, I was in, when I was in college back in 90, I think it was during 92 or 93, I remember reading the big news that Phantom was like the first you know, tour where it would be the first thing over a billion. And this right. is like 25 years ago now, right. only like six if years ago. If only we had run. premium pricing yeah. back then. If only we had all these things that people take advantage of so now. So I'm curious if you know what like kind of the total combined gross for the Phantom I juggernaut mean, it's over is. over a billion. I think the it's last, over what? It's over a billion. It was over a billion in 25 yeah. years ago. So that's no. Over, I mean, it couldn't have been over 25 years ago because yeah. it's it's like 1.1 billion dollars is what we sort of um, put in pre press releases. This now. was they were talking. Okay, rip. Yeah. No. Yeah. I mean, I'll look again. Yeah, you're. But yeah. I'll tell you. I, I, I think you you're pushing thing. four or I'll five billion thing. worldwide. Cameron. Cam oh, maybe maybe oh, yeah, it's this six worldwide billion. for tours. Maybe it's six billion. Uh, yeah, I think we we Lion King beat us. <laughs> I know that Lion yeah. King beat us on Broadway. They were the fastest Broadway. to a billion for Broadway. I remember right. reading. Yeah, right. And I think it's six billion. It's over six billion dollars worldwide. Yeah. That's the number that sticks to me in my mind. And then, of course, someone's going to care. It's like three of the top-grossing movies of all time internationally. You know, it, it'll play yeah. for people saying that theater is not a. Yeah, no, there's <laughs> especially now. You yeah. know, it's hard to buy a ticket. Because it costs so much, but the people on the other side are, are, are making it fine uh, when it's successful. Uh, so Phantom Broadway is in my life in that way. The Phantom Tour, I also serve then as associate director on the Phantom Tour. I also serve as associate director on Miss Saigon, on mm -hmm. the Broadway revival that's currently running now. And then I'll continue on with that, um, both as an EP and as an associate director for the national tour. And that will close, the Broadway production closes in January. And then we'll reopen for a tour. Wait, what? The Broadway what? Broadway is a limited run. So we oh, finish for, wait, 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 for, no, for, for Saigon. For Saigon. So yes, then we yes. finish in January, and then we'll uh, launch the tour in the fall of 18. So I mm -hmm. think September of 18. Well, I think we unfortunately have to kind of end there. This has been fascinating. We've got other interviewees, I think, literally beating down the door, ready to get in. But um, I, I, I'm pretty sure I'd love you. You have so much to say in uh Clearly, the Macintosh Empire has a powerful uh, advocate in, in you and a great choice. And I would love to have you back when I'm visiting town. So Anytime. We can continue this Anytime. conversation because we can certainly talk for a lot longer. I could but. probably slow down <laughs> if I wasn't on the coffee. So we'll have to do it with martinis or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I wish you could. But it's Seth uh, Sklar Hine. That's right? it. Thank you so much for coming no, in. Thank and you for having me. Catch Phantom on the Road in New York or uh, somewhere else. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Definitely. You won't regret it. <laughs> thank you. Just as a side note, Seth Sklarhine is such a great guy that uh, I bring students with me to uh, help put together Broadway Bullet and meet all these people. And when Seth found out that uh, one of my students with me was an aspiring stage manager, he invited her to sit backstage at Miss Saigon right with the stage manager and watch her call the cues with a headphone and following the cue book and everything. It was certainly a great highlight for her. Also, just another thing, uh, on the last season you heard him, uh, James Barber also gave her and I a backstage tour to Phantom of the Opera. So um, some other great opportunities and options you have if you come to the University of Providence. 
theater, and business arts. So check us out. On the Boards. Lady of the Castle is a new four-piece chamber opera that uh, may or may not be doing its uh, two-show run at the moment when you listen to this, but (laughs) I do know the creators are hoping this goes out to other organizations, which I know are listening. And we are speaking with the director, Lissa Mora, who is also a playwright, lyricist, has worked on all sorts of different (laughs) uh, media and mediums. Uh, And so we're excited to talk to you, Lissa. How are you doing? Well, I'm equally excited to be here. (laughs) I'm doing okay. And yeah, I act, write, direct, write poetry, do collage art. Uh, what do you need? <laughs> just tell me. I'll do it. Oh, she just handed me a business card that's like a five by seven flyer. <laughs> At least. <laughs> oh, I, I, I'm kind of similar. I have too many hyphenates myself <laughs> to put down. It's contextual, right? Yeah, well, as I say, whatever the situation calls for, I'll do it. <laughs> Well, I guess, I guess first things first, we're here to talk about Lady of the Castle, Absolutely. which even if our listeners can't catch in New York, mm-hmm. they could mount it at their own company. Yes, um, it'd be a wonderful fundraiser for Jewish organizations and refugee organizations. It's um, It surrounds, I mean, it has something to do with the Holocaust, but I know people are Holocausted out, so it's not... It's not that kind of story. In fact, when the composer first approached me, Mira J. Spector, who mm-hmm. killed me if I didn't mention her, and she's amazing, um, she told me it was Anne Frank meets Lolita. I said, <laughs> I'm aboard. <laughs> I have to see this. It's based on a true story, uh, a book by Leah Goldberg. And um, this was about a young girl uh, whose family was killed by, by the Nazis, of course, and she's running away. She's a young Jewish girl. And she's running through the woods, and she ends up at this count's castle. He takes her in, and he brings her back to life. She's three-quarters dead when he finds her. And he hides her in the walls of her castle. But then the war is over, and he doesn't bother to tell her, because in the intervening years from the time she went from 13 to 17, he has fallen in love with her. So there's a massive betrayal here, because she sees no sunlight. She gets no air. She's terrified and she hides within the walls of the castle and just comes out they have a signal she comes out and they are together the the play hints but doesn't say exactly what their relationship is so it's in the mind of the beholder just how sexual the relationship has become mm-hmm. so, yeah uh, from the description you've just given me i think you may be doing the show a little disservice to say it's only good for Jewish organizations. Oh no, it's very, it's quite it, it's, universal. Yeah, it oh, no, sounds. No. Yeah. Oh no, people of every stripe have come and absolutely loved it. They mm-hmm. they laugh, they cry, they're yeah. they're moved. Um, the, the the description you got the elevator pitch down quick. It's taught. I mean, I'm really intrigued. <laughs> you, it, I, I was grabbed immediately, and I have a cast that is absolutely amazing. They're cast of four. They have opera backgrounds, but they've all worked with me in theater because I do not, though I've directed a lot of opera, I don't direct opera. I direct great plays with music. Mm -hmm. So everybody's got to act and everybody's got to be feeling and everybody's got to be in the moment every moment. I mean, one of my singers, Doug McDonald, has sung at the Met and they all have tremendous experience as far as voice is concerned, but they're also terrific actors. And uh, uh, Amanda Yachacek, who plays the young girl, uh, Lena, who we're talking about, she's just brilliant in this. She's so moving. And uh, it's and Darcy Dunn and Ben Pelosia, the fill out the cast. And as the count, Ben, who is, besides being a wonderful actor and singer, is a shrink. <laughs> so you, you can believe he's digging into that character and the motivations. What is driving this man? So it's a, it's a fascinating story. And it takes place in a country, we think it's Czechoslovakia, though it's not stated in the show, uh, and it's become a communist nation after the war. And so his castle has been taken over by the communists, and he's allowed to stay as a caretaker, and he is deeply resentful. And you find out a lot more things about him as the story goes along, but it's a wonderful piece. Well, I'm not super steeped in opera at all, but my, I suspect, I mean, the, in terms of even people that might want to do this, I suspect there's not a whole lot of four-person operas. Right. Out there. Which it seems to me that it would be a great choice for, you know, smaller music schools or smaller theater oh, schools that are trying to absolutely. expand their... And what's great about it is it's yeah. so accessible. So people who say, ooh, opera, mm. yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, not at all, because they're just swept away by the story, and then they realize as we're going along, 
oh, they're singing opera. Oh, and I like it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of neat. <laughs> well, what are the, like the technical needs for the show for well, some company looking at it? Now we've gotten it down. You know, mm. when we did it at Theater for the New City, where it originated, we had a, the massive indication of the castle with the with with the with the um, trick door that revolves as she came out of the wall and all this mm. other kind of stuff. But now we've got a, a have van will travel kind of thing. We've uh, because we we have gorgeous projections um, by Bank Street to Films mm. and absolutely stunning. So that kind of gives us the grandeur that we need of this dilapidated castle that's kind of partly ruined. So we get the total sense of that and the garden uh, that also plays a big part in it. So all we needed was um, the. The uh, castle had to be indicated that it was lined with books because two people who come to the castle, one is looking for the hidden children of the Holocaust and the other is searching for uh, lost manuscripts and books to bring them back mm. to Israel. So you have, oh, we, we created this, my Litza Cologne, who's yeah. a genius with cardboard, <laughs> created this bookcase that literally folds in half. So, and we have this, and a clock figures heavily in it. So there's this massive clock that you created also out of cardboard, yeah. but you'd never know it. Goes in the van along with one bag full of costumes and we're ready to travel. And we just need a table and a couple of chairs, which we, we, we uh, cover artfully to make them look like they're antiques mm. when, of course, they're not. So it's... It's easy peasy as far as the, and we've worked with all different kind of lighting. We were able to get, when we did it at Opera America, we got a little bit of lighting. They gave us a little help, a little mood. mood. Um, at Theater for the New City, we had a full lighting board. It was magnificent. But we, it's the story. Yeah. It's the story and the, the, the human beings that, so we don't need a whole lot. So I'm kind of getting the idea that a small theater company in a 1919 house oh. could do it really simply, but a, a somebody who had like a 500-seat auditorium could turn this into something technically, you know, oh, scenically yeah. wonderful as well oh. and anywhere in between. Yeah, we've, we've gone mm -hmm. through the gamut. So, yeah, <laughs> of course, we love the idea of having, all you know, the yeah. magnificence of size and all of that, but we can... It, it's just getting to the heart of the people. So, mm -hmm. yeah, you can do it any which way you please, really. <laughs> What's the cast makeup of the four people? Well, we um, it's um, well Amanda Yachacek, as I mentioned. She's uh, she's playing the young girl. She's a little older than the seventeen she's supposed to be, yeah. but you'd <laughs> you'd never know it from from what she projects on stage. <laughs> uh, Doug McDonald, as who I said, has played at the Metropolitan Opera, and he's done several shows with me, which I can talk about when you get in, get yeah. further along here. Yeah. And um, Ben Peloge, the shrink, and Darcy Dunn who has done opera all over um, the city and all over the world. And she just, she's a glorious mezzo. So she's, so so uh, one younger woman, um, I will not give away Doug's age because okay. nobody believes his age because yeah. he looks so young. Only when he goes to Germany has to present his birth certificate. You know, if you do opera in Germany, you have to give them the, because they have this, this fixed thing about your voice going at a certain mm -hmm. age, which is nonsense. Mm -hmm. But, uh, <laughs> but so it's, uh, and so Ben is an older man, but he's supposed to be playing 60, um, mm -hmm. and he's in his 50s. And uh, Darcy, I won't talk about a lady's yeah. age, but she's supposed to be a little uh, younger than he, but uh, older than, than Douglas's character. Sand, who is collecting the books, he was a librarian, but he was also a soldier, he was a soldier in the war who's been injured. He uh, migrated to, he's an American who migrated to Israel, who worked in a kibbutz. He's a, he's a very varied character. And he's sort of been um, emotionally uh, suppressed because of everything he saw in the war. And this kind of young girl and her story sh sort of brings him back to life. There isn't a romance, though one could conceive of one later down yeah. the line. But he sort of blossoms back to life because of her story and... Uh, so each of and the uh, each of the characters is is so moved by the mm -hmm. young woman in different ways, and of course the count is trying desperately to hold on to her, and they want her to leave and go with them. And the question it's a tug of war for her heart and mind is really what happens. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I wish you the best of luck with oh, Lady in the Castle so as it much. goes up, and and hopefully that suitcase show goes around yeah, and around. Yeah. And I hope other you know other companies take a look at it. Yeah. And thank you so much for coming on and sharing some ideas oh, as a director. And this has been so much fun. Yeah. <laughs> not, not I didn't you know I didn't even have to have those little butterfly nervous things. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for putting me at ease this way. It was a blast. Right. Thank you well, so thank much. Thank you, Lisa Mora. Thank you, Michael. That was great. <laughs> All right.
Listening Room. Before we wrap everything up, let's listen to one more song from Christian DeGray. This is Happily Hung Over from Whiskey Pants, the mayor of Williamstown. And both these tracks were recorded live at 54 Below, where he has a one-night-only February 2nd, 2018 concert. Go check that out. Check it out, 54 Below. And here is Happily Hung Over. Sunlight streaming through the windows in the bar Bending through the painted glass to remind us where we are Now the happy hangover takes over And every heart vision jarred Lyrics card red is tried by the light creeping brightly into the bar And now I do believe that it is time I take my leave I wish you all good morning and some rest Go to bed Ice your the sunset Keep your eyes aimed toward the far west As you're happily and blissfully hung As your hangover hanging today I would not have it any other A soldier in a battle with a sense of home he can't explain. I only feel like myself when I'm in pain. Good night, my 
Well, that wraps up this episode, and we got more still coming this season. Next episode will be February 13th, and it's a very special music issue. We have got hit musicians from Come From Away, Romano Danilo, and Chris Ranney. I've always wanted to talk to some hit musicians, and the way they are involved in Come From Away made this the perfect chance. We've also got Isaac Sutton, who's a cabaret performer who performs internationally, um, and he is talking about Las Vegas to NYC, his new tour. Deborah Grace Weiner talks about her various endeavors to expand and promote the American songwriting canon. And we have Bill Solly, who, uh, as a composer and writer, is a pioneer in writing gay-themed musical theater and has been produced all over the place, but is still perhaps one of the most underrated and underknown produced composer out there. So a lot of variety coming up next season. So again, I want to thank my production assistant, my student uh, that came out and helped me this time, Catherine Chandler, and you heard about some of the great opportunities she got. Uh, This is Michael Gilbo. Thanks for coming by. One last shout out to our sponsors. Again, thank you so much to the Dramatist Guild Foundation for their continued support of this program and use of their wonderful space. Uh, It's available to members, so check it out. It's a, a free space, and it's wonderful. Also, one last push. Like I said, we are taking applications and working on developing our first inaugural class. Like I said, this is going to be about making your own work. So I'm not just building a first class. I'm creating a culture. Looking for real go-getters who want to learn all about how to make and do art and learn how to promote themselves. So until next episode, I'm Michael Gilbo, and you've been listening to Broadway Bullet. Oh!